This is a Federal News Network podcast. The White House sees 2022 as an important year for personnel vetting reform. The background investigations backlog seems to have dried up, but officials say granting security clearance still takes too long because it's too complicated. They hope technology will solve some of those problems. And for more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. After digging out of a massive backlog of background investigations in recent years, agencies are now turning their attention toward updating a decades-old process that many say is still too complex and slow. And those problems are making it harder for the government to hire and retain talented individuals. Jason Miller is Deputy Director for Management at the White House Office of Management and Budget. He oversees personnel vetting reform as chairman of the Security, Suitability, and Credentialing Performance Accountability Council, or the PAC. Miller spoke at an event this week put on by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. He says personnel vetting reforms are central to the Biden administration's push to strengthen and empower the federal workforce. We have to get this right. It is an existential threat to well-functioning of the federal government, our ability to deliver on mission. We are now in this transition phase to moving towards a new approach. This is Trusted Workforce 2.0. And we have made meaningful progress. But this year is the year we need to drive it forward. 2022 is the most significant, most consequential year for personnel vetting reform. Last January, the Trump administration published a federal personnel vetting core doctrine. It serves as the foundation of what's called Trusted Workforce 2.0. And it proposes to make personnel vetting more efficient by using technology and streamlined policies, like making it easier for clearance holders to move between agencies. The Biden administration has carried those ideas forward with new policy documents expected to come out soon. The PAC is currently finishing up a Trusted Workforce 2.0 implementation strategy that will serve as a roadmap and guide agency-specific actions. That's according to a new quarterly update from the council. The Office of Personnel Management and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence are also finalizing new investigative standards that consolidates the existing five tiers into just three. The update shows the council wants to coordinate policy developments along with the rollout of new technologies to fully realize the Trusted Workforce 2.0 reforms by 2024. Here's Miller again. We have a roadmap to deliver on it, and that's why I refer to it as careful choreography. Any one little piece Moving out of line means our entire end-to-end soup-to-nuts reform will fall behind schedule, and it's absolutely imperative. Every day is a cost to us, both from a dollar standpoint and from an opportunity standpoint. The quarterly update shows government-wide progress on the time it takes to process security clearances leveled out last year after seeing steep improvements in 2020. In the fourth quarter of fiscal year 2021, the fastest 90% of initial secret clearances took an average of 79 days to initiate, investigate, and adjudicate. That's five days slower on average than the first quarter of FY21. The goal is 74 days. Meanwhile, the fastest 90% of initial top secret clearances took 176 days on average, 35 days slower than the first quarter. The goal for top secret clearances is 114 days. The numbers are a stark improvement from when the background investigation's backlog was at its highest in 2019, but they also reflect how new applicants to national security positions can still expect to wait weeks and months for a decision on their clearance. Carrie Smith is president and chief operating officer at the Parsons Corporation, and she also spoke at the INSA event. We need to hire the best people, and we need to retain the best people. So in order to do that, to hire the best people, we have to improve the onboarding. 
And we can't have something that takes six months for kids that are getting out of school are going to go work for a commercial company. While agencies have seen progress on the time it takes to process clearance applicants, the true numbers are worse because the reported data only uses the fastest 90% of cases. Miller says the government will move toward a system that starts measuring 100%. But he also pointed out agencies can grant interim clearances to applicants awaiting a final decision, which can help get new hires to work faster. We also need to be looking at what is actually the timeline to getting people serving mission with interim clearances, not just a process that gets you your final clearance. The problem that we're talking through is how do I get people serving the mission, serving the program on the contract? Those are things that we're not fully measuring and reporting today. A key way the government hopes to speed up the process is by using continuous vetting. It's a system of automated records checks that can tip off investigators to potential issues with a clearance holder, like suspicious financial transactions or a new arrest. Under Trusted Workforce 2.0, agencies are also phasing out the requirement for a periodic reinvestigation by placing personnel under the continuous vetting system instead. Already, all 3.6 million clearance holders with the Defense Department are enrolled in an initial version of continuous vetting that defers the requirement for a periodic reinvestigation. Miller says automation and AI are key to speeding up the hiring process. We have a process where we're measuring end-to-end between when you enter the system and when you get your clearance on the back end. We need to re-engineer that process. We need to use technology to do it so that we're running checks on the front end in real time with data analytics and AI that actually are dead butts and seats. Another long-running issue with the clearance process is the willingness of one agency to accept a security clearance determination from another. It's a policy called reciprocity. A 2019 INSA study found the government is losing talent, productivity, and taxpayer dollars as agencies take months to reinvestigate individuals who have already been cleared. It's a major issue for industry, where companies often want to move personnel between contracts in different programs. INSA's study reported the delays could cost as much as $2 billion a year. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman Mark Warner says he supports the idea of establishing timeliness goals for reciprocity, like the goals that are already in place for processing initial clearances. we still got a long way to go on reciprocity. Our friends in the intel community are still probably the slowest to accept clearances from other parts of the community. Yeah, there may be certain special things with certain intel agencies, but the notion that you got to duplicate the whole process all over, no, we, we just, we got to grind that down. The long-term vision for speeding up the clearance process and improving data sharing largely rests on the successful development of an IT system. It's called the National Background Investigative Services, or INBIS. INBIS will one day replace legacy background investigation systems with an enterprise system for end-to-end clearance processing. It will also feature continuous vetting and other automated features that officials say will make the security clearance process more streamlined. But INBIS has already faced delays. The Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency is overseeing the system's development. DCSA had to reset INBIS's schedule in 2020. Since then, the program has successfully deployed multiple releases. And last year, DCSA started onboarding agencies into the system. In addition to DCSA itself... The Air Force, the Smithsonian, and the Treasury Department are the first four agencies to have personnel in INBIS. But the system is not expected to reach full operational capability with continuous vetting and other case management capabilities until sometime in 2023, making this year a particularly important one for the system's development. OMB's Miller calls INBIS the long pole in the tent 
when it comes to personnel vetting reform. If you look at the history of the federal government in terms of delivering major technology transformation projects, we don't have a high success rate. And we have to acknowledge that reality. And this obviously had some bumps along the way. We are in a better place. We have a march forward. We're also keeping a very close eye on where we are with regards to NBIS. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. 
I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... In 
my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.